Our second lesson is found in the Gospel according to John. I'm reading from chapter 4, verse 5 following. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well? and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seek to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. We wanted to keep announcements to a very minimum this morning because of the sacredness of the service. 
but there are two announcements which I do want to make. One is that next Sunday I will not be here. I have been asked to be the speaker at Massanetta Springs at the Senate of Virginia's Men's Conference, and so will be away. In my absence, the session has asked uh, Mr. Skip Taylor uh, to bring the morning message, and our ruling elder, uh, Mr. Andy Andrews, will be conducting the service. I have also been asked to make the following announcement, that the church directories have arrived and that Mrs. Hicks Anderson and Mrs. John Akers will be distributing them at the end of church today in the foyer. And now may God bless us as we worship him with our gifts and offerings.
Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that Thou hast been so good to us. We possess so much of this world's goods, and we have been so foolish so often in the way in which we've used them, that when we come into Your presence and think of the hungry and the needy and those who are without Christ, we feel greatly ashamed. We seek forgiveness. And when we think of those who know not yet the love of the Savior, our hearts are overwhelmed. And when we think of how often we have heard your word preached, and how many Bibles and hymn books and Bible study groups there are for us to avail ourselves of, and yet we make so little of these means of grace by which we may increase our knowledge and practice so poorly what we have learned, we are still more ashamed. But we are grateful that you grant to us grace to correct. And we thank you for the example of grace which we look into this morning and for the experience of grace that you bring to us through the holy table. And now we ask the Holy Spirit, the greater teacher, to speak to all our minds and all our hearts so that our wills might be turned towards serving thee more faithfully. We ask that these gifts which we bring may truly be used to glorify the name of our Redeemer, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen. Just a little over a hundred years ago, Arthur Schopenhauer, the German philosopher, was deep in thought on a park bench in Berlin. A German policeman approached him with his nightstick and nudged him in the ribs and said, Who are you? And Schopenhauer looked back at him with a blank stare and said, I wish I knew. He wondered who he was. And these are the questions that keep coming up year after year and century after century. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? For these are the basic questions that have to do with the meaning of our existence. And so God has intervened. God made us and he made us for a purpose. He made us that he might draw us unto himself and show us his love. Man went dreadfully astray of what God has taught and God has had to take the initiative to invade and buy us back and bring us unto himself again. 
And so the lesson which was read in your hearing this morning, a lesson from the Old Testament scriptures that had to do with David in his sins, crying out to God, create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, is a message that we need to hear and which we need to abide by. And then the same sort of message comes to us from Jesus' experience with that woman at the well in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, which was read partially a moment ago. Just prior to that, Jesus had dealt with a learned old theologian by the name of Nicodemus, a member of the Seventy who governed over the city of Jerusalem, a man steeped in religious tradition whose head was full of divine law and knowledge but yet whose heart was empty and who had to come to Jesus to seek for him some understanding of what the kingdom of God really was and how he might enter into it. And when Jesus startled that old man by telling him that he had to be born anew, that he had to receive from above a whole new orientation toward life and his neighbor and his death, Nicodemus was staggered, but he listened with great respect, and we have good reason to believe that he became a great leader of faith in Jesus Christ. And then in the very next chapter, we see that amazing ability of the Lord Jesus to slip from one type of society into another type of society, where a sensualist, a woman of the street, a prostitute, comes out during the searing, scorching heat of the midday sun to draw water. She does that for a reason. People will talk, and they know how she has lived. No one would want to come and draw water in the heat of the day like that, but yet she did. She did because she preferred the heat of the day to the scorching tongues of the people who might be speaking about her. And yet Jesus has this amazing capacity of entering into a discussion with her and of opening her eyes and revealing to her for the first time that God is Father and revealing for the first time to anyone that he is Messiah. And this is astounding very astounding that Jesus should do this thing. You see, he had gone through Samaria, and the Samaritans were half-breeds. They had an Old Testament Pentateuch, and they had rewritten a part of it a differing from what Orthodox Jews would think and do. They had also mingled and intermarried with other tribes, and so they were thoroughly hated uh, by Orthodox Jews who would have nothing to do with them. And so it's a, an interesting thing that Jesus has to pass through Samaria, and when he comes to this city of Samaria called Sychar, and he comes to this ground uh, uh, where Jacob had once lived, which he had given to his son Joseph, and there is a famous well. Some of you have visited that well. And Jesus is there. I can remember going into that uh, little holy place and having that old, I think it was a Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox priest or something, he, I remember he dropped a dipper and it seemed like it just fell and fell and fell and fell and finally it hit the water. 
And then he brought some water up and let me get a drink of that water. It was a standard attraction for tourists who came there. But that day, in that glaring sun, Jesus' disciples had gone away, and he was weary and tired, for he was truly man as well as truly God. And you can tell a great deal about the character of a man when he is tired. When I'm tired and someone asks me to go fishing, I can find energy that I didn't know I had. Or if my wife is tired and someone suggests that we go out to eat, she has renewed energy too. You see, our priorities uh, are apt to be put in a place like this. Now Jesus is extremely tired. And uh, being wearied, he sits thus by this well. And in this glaring heat of the sun, this woman of Samaria, and I have uh, tried a little trick with words by calling her the bad Samaritan. You know the word good does not occur in the 10th chapter of Luke where we speak of the good Samaritan. And the word bad really does not occur here. But there is something good about being bad, and there is something bad about being good. There is something good about being bad when you recognize it, and Jesus is going to cause her to recognize it. Because when you recognize it, then you know your need, and when you know your need, you're apt to seek the cure for that need. And so Jesus speaks to her and asks her to give him a drink of water. Now this startled her. She wonders if he is not aware of the fact that she is a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan of another race, no Jew would ever drink out of the same bucket that a Samaritan had taken water from. No Jew would even want to speak to a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus overcomes the racial barrier here because he wants to know that God cares for those who are weak and disenfranchised. I thought it was a tremendous act of heroism when Pope John Paul, when he visited Poland, went to that horrible death camp of Auschwitz and had placed a communion table across the railroad tracks that bore the prisoners in to put them to death because of their race. They had simply been born Jews. And Adolf Hitler in his demonic madness had put them to death. And the answer to that kind of evil is here. It's in the grace of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ which makes evil out for what it is evil. Last week I watched Tom Burkle on the Today program interviewing a distinguished physician who is the head of the Right to Life people who had some objections to the president's appointment of a woman who has a consistent anti-pro-life position to the Supreme Court. And Burkaw tried to banter and to make fun of this man because it was evident whose side he was on. It was the side of the abortionists. And Burkaw said to him, surely you don't think that an important position such as a justice of the Supreme Court should be denied on a single issue vote, do you? And this distinguished physician replied with great sagacity. 
He said, well, Tom, let's try this on for size. Suppose that this woman's same voting record were on racial issues. Would you think that that was a sufficient reason to reconsider her appointment? Well, we think the destruction of seven to 10 million unborn infants is a sufficient reason too. He spoke wisely and Burko did not know how to reply to him. He met his match. Racism is wrong and the destruction of innocent life is wrong. The willful, wanton, unnecessary destruction of will to life in this evil manner. And so it was pointed out. So here, Jesus will confront this woman with what is evil. The woman asks of him a question, give me to drink and then reminds him of the race problem and says, I am a Jew, and you know the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answers her and says, if you knew who, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Now this strikes a responsive chord because she doesn't like coming down there in the heat of the sun. So she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. And the woman said, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come uh, this way to draw. And so Jesus wants to give her the water. But he cannot give her the water until she faces up to the evil and repents of it. And neither can you really receive the grace of the Lord's Supper until you face up to your sin. If you don't think you're a sinner, for God's sake, literally, don't touch the Lord's Supper. It's not for you. It's for sinners only. For sinners who are sorry for their sins. And sinners who want to live a new life bound to Christ. So the woman says, give me the water. And Jesus said, call your husband. And then she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, well, you've said that correctly. You do have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands. Now, Samaritans could have three husbands, but not at the same time. And they certainly couldn't have five. And the one she was living with now wasn't even in that category. So Jesus said to her, uh, so she said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. He had insight into her right away. Isn't it remarkable that he knows her? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Later, when she goes into the town, and brings all the men out there. They knew who she was. Later, when she goes into the town and brings all the men out there, she says, come see a man who told me all the things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? He's here this morning. He knows every person here, and he can tell you everything you ever did. Everything you ever did. And he is here to speak to the deep needs of your heart. This is amazing to me because he wants to show us his love. And when they came back, the disciples were amazed that Jesus was talking with this woman. 
And Jesus had already explained to her that the time would come when those who worship the Father, and that's the first time that word's used, would worship him not in one mountain or the other mountain, but in spirit and in truth. And then she says, I know that when Messiah is coming, he will declare all things to, all things to us. And then Jesus makes this magnificent revelation to her. I that speak to thee am he. He tells this prostitute, I am the Messiah. And the fact that the Son of God would speak to this woman in this way to extend the grace of God to her is a tremendous thing because it shows his concern for her individual salvation. But it will not be long before she will start to bring others to Christ and to do the works of Christ, and that's why we need to look at this. Because when Christ touches our lives, we should be touching other lives too. I spoke a moment ago about the sanctity of human life. I was greatly touched when I read the account of Mother Teresa's reception of the Nobel Peace Prize. 78 years old. Do you know where she went? They had a big banquet planned for her. She didn't want the money spent on the banquet. She wanted it given to the poor. And she didn't seek out some big five-star hotel to go to. She went to a little Roman Catholic order where there was a straw mattress to sleep on and seek the fellowship of believers who believed as she did. And I also saw David Hartman very much put into the corner when he interviewed her on, the t on the This Morning America. And when he spoke to her, what she said was very revealing. She said, I want to speak about the destruction of innocent life. And I want to speak of the fact that God cares about those who die and those who are poor and those who are weak. That's what I want to speak about because that's what Christ has called me to speak about. And this was something strange for television to hear because we are so geared toward pleasure and lust and greed and that sort of thing. Well, what about this woman? And what does she say to us in preparation for communion today? Well, you're warm today because it's a hot Sunday for Montreat. That was a warm, hot day. We can feel some identity with the heat, perhaps. But we can feel some identity with the emotions that surged that day, too, because the gospel has nothing to do with time. The woman was a sinner then, and there are people just like her in the sanctuary today and listening to my voice on the radio. The gospel has nothing to do with time. It spans all the ages. He didn't suspend the rule somewhere along the line to say the one that says thou shalt not kill has now been changed. You can kill to suit yourself. He didn't say that the one that says thou shalt not commit adultery has now been changed so you may commit adultery uh, if you wish. No, he didn't suspend the rules. He brought to us a higher and a holier type of life than we are willing to admit to. It's interesting to me to study this familiar story and to think about how this story has influenced the lives of some people down through history being weary in his journey he sat down by the well he was tired 
And yet, he livens up to his conversation with this woman. And she responds beautifully to the information which she receives. And she goes and brings back a whole crowd. And when his disciples come back and are astounded at what has happened, he says to them, I have food to eat that you know not of. And they were so crass as to wonder if someone had brought him something to eat. And he said, my, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. And now what's happened down through the ages? Well, there was a man by the name of Franciscan, whose last name was Thomas of Solano. And he composed a sequence of words that I've had printed in the bulletin today because it comes from an old Latin hymn. And it's a very beautiful word. And I want to tell you a little bit about it. This man wrote this in about the 13th century. Remember, loving Savior, it was I for whom thou hadst to journey on thy way lest I be lost to thee on the last day. In search of me, search me, O God, and try my heart. Remember that 139th Psalm? In search of me thou didst sit weary, yea, for my redeeming bore the cross and pain. O may such labor be not all in vain. Now those words touch not only this Franciscan Thomas of Solano, but there was a beautiful, a remarkably beautiful girl in Spain whose name was Teresa, another Teresa, who had a picture that an artist had painted of Jesus sitting weary by this well. And beneath it were four words written in Latin, give me this water to drink. And this young girl used to look at that picture and make this prayer to the Savior, Lord, give me this water to drink, for her soul was parched and thirsty. And the Lord gave her the answer to her prayer, and she became Saint Teresa. And then if you come on down the ages, you'll find that there were others who were touched by this too. In my reading, there is no person who has touched me more with his tremendous knowledge of the English language than Samuel Johnson. And Samuel Johnson could never recite these words, even in Latin, without bursting into tears. He worried about his salvation. And then he wanted more than anything else in all of the world for the Savior who would seek to claim such a soul as this, to claim him on that last day and that he might be saved. And on the day in which he was dying, the medical doctor who attended to him was asked frankly by Johnson himself, am I now dying? And the doctor replied frankly, yes. And Samuel Johnson said, then I want no more opiates. I want to enter the presence of my God with a clear head. And then Samuel Johnson asked for communion to be brought to him. 
And they took down the prayer which came from his trembling lips, and I want to read it to you now. Almighty and most merciful Father, he prayed, I am now, as to human eyes it seems, about to commemorate for the last time the death of my Redeemer. Grant, O Lord, that my whole hope and confidence may be in his merits and in thy mercy. Enforce and accept my imperfect repentance and make the death of thy Son effectual to my redemption. Pardon the multitude of my offenses. Support me in the hour of death. Receive me to everlasting happiness for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. He said nothing more, and then he died. So now we come to the hymn of preparation. And let me tell you what the Lord's Supper does. First, it binds you to Christ by giving thanks for his death for your salvation. This is my body broken for you. The emphasis is on the verb, and love is a verb. It does something. Secondly, the Lord's Supper binds us to ourselves. We are assured that God loves us, and it makes us creatures of value and worth to him. And it makes us know that we are beloved, and because we're loved, we can easily love other people. And thirdly, the Lord's Supper binds us to our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's Pope John Paul II or Mother Teresa, these great heroic figures, or others who are willing to stand up for that which is righteous in the world, we're bound together. The church is the body of Christ. A few weeks ago, I was in Korea. And I passed by the largest Protestant church in the whole world, the Young Nock Presbyterian Church in Seoul. 30,000 members of that church. 16,000 attend worship on Sunday morning. How did it come about? It came about because individuals were touched with faith in Jesus Christ. And they passed it on to others. And we praise God that we can know that today.